Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis. And as of last week, I've completed one year's worth of weekly podcasts all about Florida true crime. I'm extremely proud of that year, that body of work. I hope you're able to binge listen to all 52 episodes. Well, on this episode, we're going to look at the case of the first Spanish immigrant ever to be placed on Florida's death row. And he was eventually exonerated, but was he really innocent? The 30-year-old man at the time had faced the death penalty and was acquitted of two counts of first-degree murder. So, as I recall, one great man once said, better that 100 guilty persons should go free than one innocent person should suffer. I think it was Nietzsche. No, it was Oscar Wilde. No, it was Benjamin Franklin. And in this case, it was Joaquin Martinez, better known as Joe Martinez. He was convicted April 15, 1997, by a jury in Tampa. And then he was exonerated June 6, 2001. DNA used to exonerate him? Usually that's what happens in these exonerations? No. Reasons for wrongful conviction? They came up with prosecutorial misconduct. And as of late 2019, the Innocence Database from the Death Penalty Information Center shows 166 exonerations of prisoners on death row in the United States since 1973. So think about it. Joe is just one of those 166 people who were set free. That's a lot of people on death row who were let go. So not only was he the first Spanish citizen to be placed on Florida's death row, he was also the first Spanish citizen to be exonerated from U.S. death row. Now... Here's what happened in the crime, the circumstances of the offense. The bodies of Douglas Lawson and Sherry McCoy Ward, hyphenated, were found in their home in Tampa, October 31st, 1995. So Lawson died from gunshot wounds and McCoy Ward died from multiple stab wounds. Like She was stabbed 30 times as she was crawling toward the front door. She was also shot once, but stabbed a bunch of times in their Tampa home. Now, the police did not find any weapons, any forensic evidence at the scene that would link the crime to the suspect. And a list of names and telephone numbers were found in the kitchen, including a pager number for a person named Joe. Now, after the police left several numeric messages on that pager, they got a phone call from a woman named Sloan Martinez. When I think of Sloan, I always think of Sloan from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. She was so hot. But anyway, this Sloan was the ex-wife of Joaquin Joe Martinez. And she made the telephone call to police and told them that she had suspicions that her ex-husband was involved in the murders of Lawson and McCoy Ward. Which is really interesting because at the time, if police had really looked into it, she was not so happy with her ex-husband because they continued an on-again, off-again relationship. They were still having sex, and then he was also dating another woman. There was this major triangle going on, and Sloan wasn't happy about it. So Sloan agreed to have her house wired for audio and video recording in an effort to get Martinez to go ahead and implicate himself in the murders. And in the conversations between Sloan and Martinez, Martinez made several comments that could be interpreted as incriminating. He said he had dreams about all the blood and how upsetting it was. But he later said that was due to an earlier car accident that he felt he caused in which a person died. And by the way, these recordings, they're kids. They had two kids. 
are screaming in the background. They're very inaudible. They're hard to hear. And they had been transcribed, but what will you find out by whom? So the police also made the transcript of the audio tape, and that became available as well to the jury. There was further circumstantial evidence that implicated Martinez in the murders, in addition to the inaudible tape that was transcribed. And this came from Laura Babcock. She's the ex-fiance of Martinez, part of that love triangle. And she testified that on October 27, 1995, Martinez told her that he planned to get in touch with a friend named Michael, who owed him money. When Martinez returned later that night, she said he was wearing clothing that didn't fit him properly, and he had a swollen lip and scraped knuckles. So that's really suspicious. And that's the same night as the murder. So additional evidence implicating Martinez came from several jail inmates who testified against Martinez, alleging that he admitted to committing the murders, attempted to implicate another individual for the crimes, and paid one of the inmates $400 for assistance with the case. Martinez was convicted, of course, in the 1995 fatal shooting of Douglas Lawson and his girlfriend, Sherry McCoy Ward. He had been sentenced to death for McCoy Ward slaying by a non-unanimous verdict, 9-3. to And in Florida, now that verdict has to be unanimous. Joe Martinez's case gained international attention during his time wrongfully incarcerated, particularly in his home country of Spain. It drew the attention of, get this, the Pope, the King of Spain, the Spanish Prime Minister, Jose Maria Aznar, were all actively involved. Again, he was sleeping with both women at the same time, so this love triangle fueled his conviction. And his parents were rabid supporters. Back in Spain, they were raising money. They had everybody involved in this case, and they wanted to get him released from prison, which they got. Martinez was sentenced to death in 1997 for the murders of Lawson and Ward in their home in Claire Mel, east of Tampa. But the Florida Supreme Court overturned the conviction and ordered a new trial because the detective in the first trial, they say, improperly told the jury that he thought Martinez was guilty. And a prosecutor repeated the statement in closing arguments. That, my friends, is the definition of prosecutorial misconduct. That certainly could inflame a jury. The Spanish media in Miami, where Martinez's family lived, and in Spain, where Martinez was born, devoured the story. Television reporters flew in from Spain for the retrial. The Pope spoke out against the death penalty. And Sarah Martinez, his mom, met with the King of Spain. Hundreds of thousands of dollars were raised to pay for Martinez's defense. The family also hired Tampa jury consultant Harvey Moore. And he said to go from death row to freedom is mind-numbing. It's unbelievable. But that's exactly what happened to Joe Martinez. His defense attorney argued that prosecutors did not have any evidence against Martinez. No fingerprints, no DNA were ever found. At the time of their death, Lawson and McCoy Ward were both 26. Lawson was shot several times with a 9mm pistol. McCoy Ward was stabbed more than 20 times as she tried to reach the front door to escape. But, get this, Lawson and Martinez once worked together at a warehouse and prosecutors contended that Martinez went to the couple's house to buy marijuana. So there was a connection there. Now, because of the passage of time, prosecutors were not able to call on the same witnesses in the retrial. 
In fact, one had died, another refused to cooperate, and another, Martinez's ex-wife, Sloan Martinez, essentially changed her story after testifying against Martinez during his first trial. Well, Martinez's mother, Sarah, who was so influential in Spain, also called Sloan the mother of Joe's children and said, you know how important it is that those children have a father? And she changed her tune. Sloan Martinez portrayed by the defense in the first trial as a vengeful ex-wife who led authorities to Martinez, helped them secretly tape conversations in which Martinez supposedly made incriminating statements. Well, in the second trial, she went on Spanish radio and television denying that her ex-husband ever committed the killings. So the first jury convicted Martinez after listening to the inaudible tape and reading the transcript of which hundreds of times the word inaudible appeared. And it was revealed in this trial that the transcript was prepared by Lawson's father, William Lawson. He was the evidence manager for the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. So the victim's own father prepared the transcript. That would be like Nicole Brown Simpson's dad conducting the DNA testing on all of O.J.'s blood that was found at the scene. But for the retrial, Circuit Judge Padgett ruled that the whole tape was inaudible and a deputy was allowed to read only parts of the transcript. Now, an hour into deliberations, the second jury asked for more information about the tape, but Padgett told them the tape was not in evidence. So the verdict was broadcast live in Spain and the victim's families were extremely distraught the second time around after he was found not guilty. They said, we accept the verdict from the jury because that's the law of the land, but we are very disappointed because we absolutely believe that he is guilty. And he very well may be. People changed their stories. People weren't available. It's hard to overturn a jury conviction. Even if the person is innocent, they were convicted by a jury who heard all the evidence. So It's really difficult to get that overturned and then to go back to trial and get another jury to find you not guilty. Now, Sarah Martinez, his mom, said she always knew her son was innocent. She wore the same outfit and the same hairdo. I hope she had it dry clean as she washed her hair, but she wore the same outfit and hairdo that she had on when she met with the King of Spain in Miami to get her son freed. Now, the defense said that Joaquin's case is a textbook example of prosecutorial misconduct. He was arrested in January of 1996 for the double murder in Florida, convicted and sentenced to death in April of 1997. The conviction overturned by the Florida Supreme Court due to misconduct in presenting evidence that prejudiced the jury and improper statements by a police detective at trial stating he believed Joaquin was guilty. And then they threw out that tape, that supposed confession he made to his ex-wife. So during his retrial, the key prosecution witnesses changed their stories, recanted their testimony. The informants all admitted that detectives had promised them rewards for implicating Joe. And additionally, a key piece of evidence, that audio tape of the alleged incriminating statements, was ruled inadmissible. The tape was so inaudible that the first jury had been provided with the transcript, which was, of course, prepared by the father of one of the victims, who worked for the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. After these gross incidences of misconduct were exposed and the defense introduced new alibi testimony in the retrial, Joe was acquitted of all charges. And by the way, a medical examiner had determined that the two had been dead for approximately anywhere from 24 to 72 hours, and there was no forensic evidence that pointed to a suspect anywhere at the scene. And for three months, police had very little to go on until Sloan Martinez, the ex-wife, made that phone call. 
The couple had been recently divorced but continued a very turbulent on-again, off-again relationship. In fact, the day that Sloan contacted police, she had just learned that Joe planned to skip a visit with their two daughters to go on vacation with his new fiance. And after meeting with police in person, Sloan agreed again to let them put recording devices on her phone and in her apartment while she got him to implicate himself in the murders. Now, based on the information gathered in these conversations, police then made their arrest. Now, prosecutors not only relied on that tape, but they also presented testimony from five jailhouse informants, all of whom said that Martinez had discussed his involvement in the murders with them. They claimed at the time they received nothing in exchange for their testimony, but that changed the second time around during the second trial. It was a markedly different affair. The defense introduced alibi testimony. Neither Sloan, Martinez, nor any of the jailhouse snitches were called to the stand as had all recanted their previous testimony. Martinez then was acquitted June 6th, 2001. So what is the Spaniard up to these days? Well, Joe now lives in Spain and campaigns for the abolition of capital punishment on a global scale. Right now, there's 53 countries out of the nearly 200 in the world that have the death penalty, and they include Afghanistan, India, Nigeria, the U.S., Iran, Japan, Taiwan, and Kuwait. And he maintains he's committed to the fight for abolition of the death penalty until it's fully achieved. Worldwide. And the U.S. is just one of a handful of countries considered to be industrialized that still execute criminals. So wrapping up, Joe Martinez became a free man after spending three years on Florida's death row, which is just steps away from the death chamber. During the time that they had old Sparky, the light would dim outside the death chamber when an inmate was put to death. And the inmates on death row would see that light dim and start to bawl, start to cry because they knew they were next. But now it's switched to lethal injection, which has its own cabal of problems. Now, the first Tampa jury took two hours to convict Joe. The second jury took two hours to acquit him. To me, it seems crazy to decide whether a man lives free or dies in a matter of four hours. I mean, should Floridians be asked to decide the life or death fate of an inmate and whether state-sanctioned murder is appropriate? Should that be put on their shoulders? Civil servants deciding life and death? If you want to hear more about this topic, listen to my podcast, Episode 9, From Old Sparky to the Spike. Not only does it explore the pros and cons of the death penalty in Florida, it also details how and why the state changed the method of execution from electric chair to lethal injection. Something about an inmate's head and face mask bursting into flames. So let me just wrap up this episode of Full Rigor with a few fun facts about Al Capone. You know, there's always a Florida connection. And in the case of the first Scarface, Al Capone, the answer is yes, there is a major Florida connection. Well, Capone was born January 17th, 1899. My birthday's the 18th. There's very few people born on the 18th. We almost had Capone, but I think Kevin Costner and Donnie Osmond were born on the 18th. Anyway. He died January 25th, 1947 on Palm Island on Miami Beach. That's where he ended up after he did his stint in prison in Alcatraz for tax evasion. That mansion, by the way, as of last year, was up for sale for 15 million bucks. 
The mansion, which is near Gloria Estefan's house, that's on Star Island, is on Palm Island, 93 Palm Island. And it was on the market last year for $14.9 million. It previously sold in 2013 for $7.4 million, and again in 2014 for $7.9 million. Now suddenly it's worth twice as much. So the famous American gangster, he dominated organized crime in Chicago from 1925 to 1931. But before he turned 21, he was involved in several violent incidents as a youth at the Harvard Inn, a young hoodlum slashed his face with a razor and left a huge scar on his left cheek. So that later prompted the name Scarface. You might know that Tony Montana and the Scarface movie was also a Miami story. His wealth in 1927 was estimated to be close to $100 million. I mean, that's 1927 bucks. He was the most notorious of bootleggers, and remember the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in which seven members of Bugs Moran's gang were machine gunned in a garage in Chicago's north side? That was on February 14, 1929, Valentine's Day. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre damaged the public images of Chicago and Capone, and he was then later dubbed Public Enemy Number 1. Then you remember the movie The Untouchables. Capone was actually untouchable because he had a raging case of syphilis, which he got when he was younger. He was a a bouncer manager type at a bordello, and he sampled the product, as it were, and got syphilis, but he was too embarrassed to ask for any medical help about it. So he had it for years and years and years. And finally, when the miracle of penicillin was discovered, he was treated after he was discharged from prison in Alcatraz, where he was treated the last year of his sentence there for neurosyphilis. At the time, they said he had the mental capacity of a 12-year-old. So Capone's syphilitic condition was discovered by doctors at Alcatraz, and they gave him treatment, including infecting him with malaria in hopes that the fever would kill the syphilis disease, which had gone too far. It had spread to his brain. It rendered him insane. According to reports, his behavior included a belief that he owned a factory with 25,000 employees and sitting in his heated cell with his winter coat and gloves on. Wow. He spent the final year of his prison sentence in the hospital. He sought additional care as soon as he was released at Baltimore's Union Memorial Hospital. In addition to admitting Capone for treatment, Union Memorial even put up with his entourage, including bodyguards, a barber, a masseuse, food tasters to protect him from grudge-holding enemies. He was so grateful for the care that he gave the hospital two magnificent weeping cherry trees in 1939. Both trees were planted on the grounds, but by the 1950s, one of them had to be moved to make way for a new wing in the hospital. So the remaining tree has grown without fanfare for more than a half century until 2010. A snowstorm split it down the middle and claimed a 10-foot branch. There was a woodworker there that made bowls, wine stoppers, pens, and trinket boxes from the fallen branch and then sold them on eBay to benefit the hospital. The rest of the tree still stands and hospital officials say it's doing well. And an arborist has also successfully planted clippings from the old tree around the hospital campus. And those are called caponets. I love that. So Capone, who gained notoriety during the Prohibition era, ended up dying at his home in Miami on Palm Island. So he ended up dying on January 25th, 1947 of cardiac arrest. His heart stopped after he suffered a stroke.
Capone's presence in Miami extends from his Palm Island home to a hideout in the Everglades known today as the Ghost Villager Lost City, where he purportedly made moonshine during Prohibition. It's an official Florida archaeological site, but no one knows where exactly it is, and no one knows for sure what Lost City deep in the Everglades was used for throughout history. Rumor has it, though, that Capone may have used it to produce moonshine in the 30s. Others claim it was used as a hideout for 30 to 40 Confederate soldiers running from the Union, only to be later killed by Seminole Indians, which, by the way, you can listen to my podcast on the Seminole Indians that I did last Thanksgiving. They are the only unconquered Indian tribe in the United States. Now, this area is three acres and it's located about eight miles south of Alligator Alley where 595 turns into the alley as a way to get from the east coast of Florida over to the west coast of Florida. And state wildlife officials and archaeologists have inspected the area countless times over the years, finding old rotten shacks, a canoe, Indian artifacts, an iron kettle. Although many of these items are over hundreds and thousands of years old, the latter leads experts to speculate that the Lost City was a bootlegging operation dating back to the Prohibition era as iron kettles were used to extract alcohol from sugarcane, which, you know, Florida has a lot of sugarcane. So today, most of Lost City, also referred to as Ghost Village, is covered by vegetation, making it really hard to find, especially considering that there are no distinct paths to get to it and maps don't display it. But because it was so hidden back in the 30s, it was a perfect place to produce illegal booze without the fear of being caught. And even though the Lost City is impossible to find, it is still noted as an archaeological site in the Florida State Archives. In 1949, it was mentioned in the Fort Lauderdale Daily News after Davy Hunters flew over it. They were in a Piper Cub. And then they used an airboat to find it once more. However, because it is so remote and the Everglades is so immense, most people can't find it, let alone Nobody really knows about it, but now you do. And to this day, no one knows for sure, besides the Indians, the exact location. You can also feel Al Capone's presence in Broward County with a restaurant called Cap's Place. This is the coolest thing. It was built in 1928. It's like a floating restaurant. You have to take a boat to get to it. It is recognized as a national landmark. Cap's in Broward County is the oldest restaurant with roots to the 1920s casino and rum running speakeasy. It sits on an island off Lighthouse Point and can only be reached by Cap's Motor Launch. It's named after Cap Knight and was a rum-running restaurant and gambling casino nestled on an island in the coastal marsh for nine decades. Cap's Place has served the best seafood in South Florida with the most unique waterfront setting. You really need to go there. I've had dinner there. It's really lovely. Among some of the notables who've enjoyed Cap's creative cuisine, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, Al Capone, Meyer Lansky, George Harrison, Errol Flynn, The Temptations, Gloria Swanson, Mariah Carey, Norm from Cheers, Joe Namath. Caps has hosted the most famous and infamous for decades. That wraps up this episode of Full Rigor. Until next time, thanks for listening. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.
With Black Friday savings at the Home Depot, you'll find top brand kitchen appliances with innovative features that can do more so your holidays can be more. Ovens with built-in air fryers for baking the perfect cookies. Dishwashers with smart tech to clean everything from bakeware to festive mugs and high-capacity refrigerators to keep leftovers fresh. Shop Black Friday savings and get up to 30% off, plus instantly save up to $750 on select GE kitchen packages at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Offer valid November 2nd through November 30th. U.S. only. See store or online for details.